Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, Richie Torres, chair of the City Council's Committee on Oversight and Investigations, brings us up to date on lead, liability, and the latest NYCHA news. The failure of lead safety in public housing has been decades in the making. Yeah. Right, so it's not only a failure that belongs to the Blasio administration or the Bloomberg administration, but also mayors before them. And then, trial by deal. How 95% of people convicted in America get there via plea bargains with prosecutors. The Innocence Project says the system is in desperate need of reform. Our clients, on average, serve 14 years behind bars before mm. they were released. And we have clients that serve 20, 30, up to 40 years behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. Mm. The unique horror of wrongful conviction can't really be put into words. It really can only be understood by the people that have experienced it. But what right. they share is they were robbed of everything. Coming up, Americans are being convicted of crimes without one juror being impaneled, one piece of evidence being admitted, or one witness being called. The Innocence Project is calling for change. But first, a shocking new report from the New York Times has found that for at least two decades, the New York City Housing Authority consistently dodged and disputed tests that revealed lead in its apartments. Based on thousands of pages of documents and 100 interviews, the new report says that between 2010 and 2018, NYCHA challenged 95% of the lead orders it received from the city's Department of Health. More than 1,100 children have tested positive for lead in New York City's public housing since 2012. This comes as New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced plans to bring repairs to 62,000 NYCHA apartments. To tell us more, we're joined on the phone by Richie Torres, council member from District 15. He's also the chairman of the city's Committee on Oversight and Investigations. Council member Torres, welcome back to 112BK. It's an honor to be here. You've been very active in the fight against lead poisoning and holding perpetrators accountable, which is very, very important work. But can you please tell us what the takeaway was from this report specifically? You know, we've known for about a year as a result of the DOI report that from 2012 to 2016, not only was NYCHA failing to conduct legally required lead safety inspections, but NYCHA had been submitting false testimony, false certifications mm -hmm. to the federal government. But in light of the New York Times report, we've come to discover that even before 2012, there's no evidence that NYCHA ever had a successful or effective lead safety program. That for decades, NYCHA has been in denial about the true scale of lead poisoning and lead paint in public housing. And NYCHA's been complacent about lead inspections, lead testing, lead abatement, and has been particularly aggressive when it comes to challenging lead abatement orders from the Department of Health. So the article indicates that private landlords challenge lead abatement orders 4% of the time, whereas NYCHA challenges it 95% of the time. That's a big number. So, so NYCHA literally put far more energy and resources into challenging lead testing results than actually solving the problem. I know that one of your main concerns has been matching the city's definition of lead poisoning with the federal government's. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, so historically, the city has defined lead poisoning at either a blood level of 10 micrograms per deciliter or 15. Mm -hmm. 
where the federal government recommends a threshold at level five. Right. So there was a whole universe of children who had what the federal government would consider hazardously high levels of lead, but for whom there was no public health intervention from the city at all. And you know, once you are exposed to lead, it has consequences that haunt you for the rest of your life. It can cripple your ability to succeed academically in school and to succeed personally in life. Right. Mayor de Blasio has announced a new plan for NYCHA, right? Could you tell us what that plan is, what it means? So the de Blasio administration came out with Next Generation NYCHA 2, which, you know, I see as an improvement on Next Generation NYCHA 1, and at the heart of Next Gen 2 is a program known as the Rental Assistance Demonstration Program, Mm -hmm. otherwise known as RAD. And under RAD, traditional public housing is converted into Section 8 so that NYCHA can access new sources of funding. Mm. So the, even though it sounds like a complicated program, it's simple. It means that the tenants can live in the same apartment. The tenants pay the same rent. You pay no more than 30% of your income toward your rent. Right. The only difference is that there's more money for repairs. There's more money for long overdue repairs. Mm-hmm. So I'll provide you with an example. The first example of a RAD conversion was a public housing development in Far Rockaway, Queens, known as Ocean Bay. Mm-hmm. Before RAD, Ocean Bay had been starved of funding for decades, for 60 years. Wow. After RAD, Ocean Bay received $560 million in renovations. So for the first time, you had a residence living in apartments free of mold and mildew, free of lead and leaks, with reliable heat and hot water. You had buildings with new bricks and new roofs, new elevators, new boilers. You had tenants who historically had been treated as second-class citizens living in first-class affordable housing. And so RAD is the only program that I know of that can transform the living conditions of public housing residents. Right. It's a controversial program, but I think the controversy is based more on misunderstanding. The New York Times article also mentioned a five-year-old Brooklynite, Michaela Bonaparte, um, and that her blood showed lead at levels almost never seen in modern New York. That's according to the Times. That's what they said. My question is, who should we hold accountable for Michaela's condition? I know who I would like to hold accountable, but who do we hold accountable for her and for other children like her? the, the, The... The failure of lead safety in public housing has been decades in the making. Yeah. Right. So it's not only a failure that belongs to the de Blasio administration or the Bloomberg administration, but also mayors before them. Right. But I will tell you, there there were a number of executives who knowingly falsified, submitted false information to the federal government, who knew that NYCHA was out of compliance with local and federal law on lead safety. Mm-hmm who knew that NYCHA's practices were endangering the welfare and safety of children, those executives should be criminally prosecuted. I hope so, too. I don't think you're alone in that. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Richie Torres. Of course. Take care. So 95% of felony convictions in the U.S. come from guilty pleas. That's right. Prosecutors don't really like taking cases to trial, so they apply a lot of pressure to make a deal. They may offer less time, lesser charges, or smaller fines. 
Add to that the likelihood your lawyer, despite all good intentions, has a heavy caseload and can't devote sufficient attention to your case. And even if someone doesn't take a plea from the prosecutor, they'll get pressure from the judge. Say you'll be in court during the third adjournment and he or she will say, son, because it's usually a son, don't you just want to take the plea? You're facing a lot more time if you don't. So what happens? People take the plea, even if they're innocent. Hard to believe, but not really if you've seen how things actually work. Our next guest has seen how things work, and she's going to tell us about that and what's being done to fix it. She's the director of policy at the Innocence Project, a decades-old legal organization committed to exonerating wrongfully convicted individuals. Oh, and by the way, of those people who've been exonerated, 18% had pleaded guilty. Rebecca Brown, welcome to 112BK. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Can you tell me more about the Innocent Project's Guilty Plea Problems campaign? Absolutely. So uh, the Innocence Project has proven the innocence of more than 350 people now nationwide. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not just our organization, but a network of innocence organizations that work post-conviction to prove people's innocence. Right. And we know from those cases that 11% of those DNA-based exonerations people pled guilty to those crimes. And mm. these are very serious violent crimes like rape and murder. So mm. when you think about the whole criminal justice system, the fact that we have 2.3 million people behind bars in this country, mm -hmm. especially people that are behind bars for lower level crimes like right. misdemeanors, when the stakes are lower, the pressure is even you know, greater to plead mm -hmm. guilty because the stakes are lower, the prison time isn't as long that you're facing, and of course the consequences of going to trial can be profound. So right. it's a huge problem. Why are you guys launching this campaign now? Well, we think a huge part of our work, you know, and our success in the advocacy realm is really educating the public. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't understand the guilty plea problem. I think they don't understand the extent of it. And and I think, you know, the fact that our system is so large, that is why we have a guilty plea problem that is mm -hmm. this large, right? Just, a f you know, 20 years ago, 70% of people were choosing to plead guilty. Now right. it's up to 95%. And that's, and, and in many ways, that's simply because we have a volume-based system. Mm -hmm. You know, we are in the era of mass incarceration. We have a system that simply couldn't handle that number of trials. Right. Um, and so the pressure is that much greater for people to plead guilty and unfortunately and tragically to crimes they didn't commit. Why do so many people end up pleading guilty to crimes they don't commit? You know, one of the things that I, I hear a lot, and I have some idea why this might be the case, but one of the things that I hear a lot is, you know, if it was me, I would never, ever, ever plead guilty. Right. My innocence would be the most important right. thing. Right. But I think there are certain aspects of being arrested, being in jail, mm -hmm. that people don't really understand when it comes to these things. Right. That's right. I mean, I think there's extraordinary pressure to plead guilty, even though for many it's a counterintuitive phenomenon, right? Like, mm -hmm. why would someone plead guilty to a crime they didn't commit? Also, why would people falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit? Right. We know that 28 percent of our cases involve people who somehow inculpated themselves or, you know, falsely confessed to crimes they didn't commit. So why do people do that? I mean, there are so many reasons. There's mm -hmm. fear of a harsher punishment, right? There's, we talked a little before, you, you mentioned in your introduction, sort of the trial penalty, right? right. That 
that if you don't take the plea, you're facing that much more time. Right. And a lot of people are coming from communities that just don't have, you know, any trust in the system anymore. Right. Right. They they don't believe that the system is going to, you know, get to the truth. And if they're facing, you know, two years if they plead out versus 10 years if they go to trial, it's actually a rational choice to plead guilty. Right. But what is the incentive behind having a system that relies so heavily on plea bargains? Because that's really, I guess, what gets me. You know, these people who find themselves caught in the system quite often find themselves caught in the system. But the people who create and perpetuate it, Mm -hmm. what could they possibly be getting out of it? Right. Well, I think, unfortunately, the plea system in many ways is a byproduct of mass incarceration. Right. right? It's it's one of the sort of collateral consequences, if you will, of having a system that is this large. Right. Right. So the if you build it, they will come. You have a larger mm. system. You have there is no way all of those cases can be dealt with at trial. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that, you know, system players are, are necessarily waking up in the morning and saying, how do I elicit pleas from innocent people? Right. But I do think when you build a system, system that is incentivized to push people through the system through Mm -hmm. a plea process, that is a tragic byproduct. Right, absolutely. And one of the byproducts, I guess, of this system is the cash bail system, which unfortunately does not serve the population's uh, adequately. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, I think in many ways, it's like a tale of two cities, Mm. right? If you can afford cash bail, you can fight your case not being in detention. Right. If you can't afford cash bail, you will be detained. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and of course, you know, the pressure to plea is that much greater. You want to get out of detention whatever it takes. Right. I mean, there's extreme abuse in prison. I don't have to tell anyone about what prison conditions are like. Right. Um, but it's, you know, the pressures are enormous. So, you know, we shouldn't have you know, a a system based on wealth. We should have a system based on justice. And of course, you know, one thing that's missing from many of these, you know, sort of systems is an analysis of someone's ability to pay and setting bail based on someone's ability to pay. Mm -hmm. You know, New York State has a pretty decent bail law. It offers nine different possibilities that judges can offer, requiring that they only offer two. The Mm -hmm. tragedy is that they often are only offering either bail or detention. But there are all sorts of other options, like unsecured bonds, right? There are things that other things that judges can be offering that would reduce that pressure, you know, to, to plead out. Then why don't we see that as much? I think that, you know, a lot of this is cultural. Mm. And I think, you know, I'm a policy person, right? Mm -hmm. I work a lot in the state legislatures, but I always say I'm only as effective as culture change. I can pass a law, but if we're not shifting sort of perceptions and and sort of how different system players approach Mm -hmm. the defendants standing in front of them and really see the whole person, you Mm. know, we're not going to make the progress that we all want to see. How would we even begin? Because that's a thing Mm -hmm. that I find really interesting. And I find that with a lot of these big issues Mm -hmm. like mass incarceration, part of the problem is we need a culture shift. But how do we even begin to start having the conversations that actually change the minds that help push us into that culture shift? I think that's a great question. And I, you know, I don't think there's an easy answer, but I think a lot of it is, you know, demonstrating that actually different ways work, Mm. you know, if somebody's really just worried about public safety and that's the main driver for them in a policy conversation, it's important to demonstrate to them that actually incarcerating people doesn't make anyone safer. Mm. Putting people behind bars for long periods of time, you know, doesn't prepare them to reenter society, you know, in a way that's going to 
be workable, right? Right, And so I think a lot of our ability to shift culture is to actually show that these alternatives work. And mm-hmm. actually, if we think about different and new ways of doing things and approaching people holistically and trying to understand actually what were the things that led to criminal behavior if in fact there was criminal behavior. You know, was there a lack of social supports? Is there inadequate education? Is there mm-hmm. inadequate health care? The housing situation, just right. not secure, right? There, there are many, you know, defender organizations in New York from mm-hmm. the Bronx defenders to neighborhood defenders services that are really doing wonderful work in terms of approaching a client holistically, understanding, you know, what are the things that are holding this person back and Mm -hmm. and what are the ways that we can kind of make for a healthier society? Because criminal justice, it's a public health issue. And what options do people have pre-trial? Because I think quite often people don't even know what they can do to advocate for themselves. Right. I mean, I think it, it's it's very complicated because mm-hmm. in many ways there are many systems that right. exist that are sort of beyond their control. I mean, I think actually one of the biggest problems facing New York State right now mm-hmm. is something called discovery, basically the obligation of the state to provide evidence or, or information to the defense before trial. Mm. In New York State, we are fourth to the bottom in the country, right? in terms of the information that has to be handed over to the, to the defense pre-trial. Mm-hmm. We don't get witness names, witness statements, or police reports until the eve of trial. So a wow. lot of people refer to this as trial by ambush. Ooh. And as a result, defenders' hands are tied. They don't even know the evidence that is going to be presented against their client, and they certainly can't do any sort of realistic investigation, right? Right. They can't actually adequately defend their clients because they're information starved. So I actually think it is true that people, of course, should always be advocating for themselves, but I think in many ways the system doesn't allow it Mm. because nobody's in a position to defend themselves adequately if they don't have the information at the ready. You know, they can't go and interview witnesses. They can't, they don't even know what the evidence is. Right. And it seems to me that at this point, it would be really hard to get an assessment of how many innocent people there actually are behind bars. But is there any, like, how do do you guys find your clients? How do you figure out who these people are and how to help them. Right. I mean, you know, obviously, uh, you know, there's such a great need and and the need is so much greater than what anyone is able to provide. But, um, you know, we get hundreds of letters a month. People write to the Innocence Project directly. They write to our innocence organizations around the country and they're just seeking help post-conviction. So that's really how they're identified. They write to people themselves. And, you know, in terms of your other question, which was a great one, there are different estimates about how many folks are innocent behind bars. Some estimates as low is one to two percent, some as high as eight to ten percent. But when you think about a system with 2.3 million people behind bars, those are huge numbers. Right. Has the role of the prosecutor changed? Well, I think, yes. I think, mm-hmm. first of all, we see there are a lot more prosecutors than there ever were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was when crime really spiked in the 80s, we went from having 17,000 prosecutors to 20,000. But right. then when crime precipitously declined in the next decade, they hired another 10,000 prosecutors. Hmm. And what we saw, and it mainly correlates to this time period, is that the number of arrests that were charged as felonies went from one to three mm-hmm. to two to three. So, in fact, you were just seeing many more arrests being charged as felonies. So, right. you know, in essence, the system has just gotten larger and larger. And, you know, this isn't to suggest that prosecutors aren't trying to conduct themselves conscientiously. Right. Um, I think many are. I just think that we have a system now that, you know, you talked before about incentives. If you have more people working in a system, obviously the expectation is that you are going to criminalize more crimes. Can you talk to me about the, really quickly, just some of the mm-hmm. long-term damage 
of the wrongfully convicted because I think not enough people really understand how it affects a life. Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Mm -hmm. um, so we, uh, our clients on average serve 14 years behind bars before mm -hmm. they were released. Um, and we have clients that serve 20, 30, up to 40 years behind bars for crimes they didn't commit. Mm -hmm. The unique horror of wrongful conviction can't really be put into words. It really can only be understood by the people that have experienced it. But what right. they share is they were robbed of everything, right? Mm -hmm. They Many of them lost their parents while they were behind bars. Parents died. They lost loved ones. They were robbed of the opportunity to develop their own families mm -hmm. and fall in love and have families of their own. They were certainly robbed of the opportunity to professionally develop. We have clients that come out of prison that have never held a cell phone before. Right. You know, they don't know how to use a computer. They certainly can't compete in the workforce. Um, right. So, you know, everything is basically taken from them. Yes. Everything. And to start all over, I mean, our clients are my biggest heroes because many of them do start over. I mean, we have a client who's now a fire chief. We have mm -hmm. another client. We have clients who are lawyers now. Right. Um, and they're beyond inspirational. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if it were me, I'd be like, you know, in a fetal position in, in the yes. corner somewhere. So. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> there are going to be, I'm certain, people who watch this and think, I want to help them. I want to be useful in some way. What can they do? Well, the first thing they can do is go to our website, www.innocenceproject.org backslash pledge. Mm -hmm. And there you can sign up to get action alerts about things that are happening here in New York State. Mm -hmm. um, so as we launch campaigns, and we intend to work very hard on discovery reform this year, uh, people will get alerts, call your lawmaker, support this campaign, you know, host a, a house party to, to, mm -hmm. to teach in, show a film about, you know, innocence. Um, right. We have a library of films that we could share with folks. Um, we have a YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, learn about it. Learn about the, the crisis of wrongful conviction. That's amazing. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. This is important work, and I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. It's my last show. It has been an honor to sit in this seat and talk with you as many days as we've had. And I look forward to a future where hopefully I'll get to talk to you again, you know, if they have me back. Thank you. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It is also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Ariana Rosas, Chrissy Roberts, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Our executive producers are Aziz Aishun, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 